That's it, Spider-Man. Keep moving fast. Keep him off balance. It's our only chance against his deadly wand. Welcome back and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. This week, we're running through THE Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 2, The Wondrous World of Doctor Strange. Question. How does a straight-edge superhero from Forest Hills, Queens handle a fight for his life against two relentless bruisers in a world so trippy it makes the best acid look like a nickel bag of shakeweed? You don't know? Well, we're about to find out. We've got Spidey far from home decades before the silver screen. We've got Mr. Doctor Strange before he's Sorcerer Supreme. We've got the premiere of the pointy white-bearded Sorcerer Zondu and his two henchmen. They don't speak, but we know the duo bruise. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got THE Amazing Spider-Man, annual number two, The Wondrous World of Doctor Strange, by the, the Dread, Dread Vipers of Valtor. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. Before we dive into the mystical mayhem that is The Amazing Spider-Man, annual number two, We've got to pop a spotlight on Marvel's mightiest mystical mage. I'm talking about the man with the goldenrod hands, the caped conjurer, the alliterative occultist, a one sorcerer supreme, Doctor Strange. Stephen Vincent Strange first appeared in Strange Tales number 110 in July of 1963. He was created by the GOATs Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. He's 6 feet 2 inches tall and 180 pounds on the weigh-in, with gray eyes and black hair with gray temples. So he's got the Reed Richards working, shade black. His most notable team affiliations are Marvel's Illuminati, the shadowy superhero sect that moves the superhero community from behind the scenes, and the Defenders, a superhero team known for its great comedic writing, where he usually teams up with the Hulk, Namor the Submariner, and a rotating list of heroes. So his history. Before Stephen Strange was known the world over as the Sorcerer Supreme, he was one of the world's foremost surgeons with rock steady hands, a steadier bank account, and all the arrogance being a privileged white male can get you. All that changed one fateful night when Stephen Strange was in a car accident. Although he only suffered minor nerve damage, that minor nerve damage had major ramifications. Strange was no longer able to hold a scalpel with a steady hand, and his stalwart career as one of the world's greatest surgeons came to an end. Exhausting his personal fortune futilely to repair his hands, Strange lost all he'd worked for and began drowning his sorrows at the bottom of as many bottles as he could find. Learning about a healer known as the Ancient One, Strange traveled to Tibet, hoping the mysterious healer could help him, but was shocked to find that the man claimed to be a sorcerer. A man of science and the hard, fast rules of the universe, Strange refused to believe this Ancient One knew magic, until Strange met Baron Mordo, a student of the Ancient One who plotted to kill the sorcerer. Mordo put a hex on Strange, a hex that prevented Strange from telling the Ancient One about Mordo's plans. Now believing in magic, Strange asked the Ancient One to become his pupil, hoping to aid the man if Baron Mordo tried to kill him. The Ancient One threw him one better. He freed Strange of the curse, accepted the adult doctor as his student, and began training Strange in the, all of the mystic arts. 
Always a quick study. There was no one more eligible for the mantle of Sorcerer Supreme when the Ancient One passed away. And Stephen Strange went from star pupil to the world's first and best line of defense against evil users of magic across all dimensions and planes of existence. And for such a lofty title, you need a host of lofty abilities and weapons at your disposal. But before we get into the magic, take note that Stephen Strange is a genius level intellect, a skilled martial artist, particularly in judo proficient with swords and axes, and is still a gifted physician with all the knowledge an elite surgeon can hold in his head. And Strange can hold a lot. Getting into the magic, Strange is more well-versed in magic than any other practitioner in the Earth dimension, drawing power from mystical beings such as Sidorak, Icon, Ashtor, Ragador, Watum, and Agamotto. These powers grant him the ability to cast illusions, move through the world in an astral projection form, summon and conjure weapons, and a host of other abilities. Strange also owns more than a few powerful mystical artifacts, such as the Book of the Vashanti, the greatest source of white magic on Earth, his Cloak of Levitation, which grants Strange the ability to fly, and probably his most powerful artifact, the Eye of Agamotto, which allows Strange to see through illusions and deceptions, witness past events, create portals to other dimensions, weaken dark mystical beings, probe people's minds, grant a powerful mystical shield, and carry multiple beings across great distances with no problem. All that, and he's rocking the coolest pair of golden gloves in existence. It needs to be pointed out, although it doesn't hurt or help the story, Doctor Strange is not yet the Sorcerer Supreme in this story, but he is the world's foremost mystical protector. So we've got the player. Here's the play. The cover. The cover of this issue is set on a goldenrod negative space, so you already know it's gonna be action-packed. Above the title of this issue, in a red caption box we get, Special King Size Annual. Then, THE Amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman in a deep royal purple with Spidey Costume Red shadowing our hero's name. Beneath this, in a black banner with orange words, THE WONDROUS WORLDS OF DOCTOR STRANGE, ALL NEW. And standing stage left in a full body contraposto pose, his left hand in front of his left hip, his right partly in shadow, is the golden liability, Spider-Man himself. This cover is a straight ode to Spidey. Next to his full length shot is a Spider-Man head and three quarter profile. And on this head, we have three little Spider-Men crawling on it. One on his forehead, another clinging to his right eye, a third popping out from beneath his left chin, and two more mini Spider-Men in front and below the Spider-Man head. The cover tells us we're getting three of Spidey's past epics, but they're not in this masterwork series. No reruns. The past epics, the first story from Amazing Spider-Man number one, Spider-Man, and the uncanny threat of the terrible tinkerer. The second story from ASM number two, and marked for destruction by Dr. Doom. This is normally the part where I tell you to go back and listen to these stories, but this is an annual. So I'll only tell you to go back and listen to marked for destruction by Dr. Doom because that one is a full episode by itself. But Spider-Man and the uncanny threat of the terrible tinkerer, a little podcast magic allows me to give you both of those stories at the tail end of this one. Don't ever say I wasn't there for you. Let's get into it. The credits. This psychedelic masterpiece was written and edited by the toast of Marvel, Stan Lee. Plotted and drawn by the boast of Marvel, Steve Ditko. Lettered and boarded by the ghost of Marvel, Sam Rosen. So yes, this is another S and S and S production. Page one over to the side of the spider next to the title of this issue. The wondrous world of Doctor Strange in SJB blue. Beneath it, we see the golden liability suited and booted, standing right foot forward, left foot back, and what can only be described as a Jackson Pollock painting run amok. 
Spidey standing on an orb that contains a universe inside. There's a ring planet, a purple and pink planet, glistening stars, and a supernova explosion. Behind Spidey, outside of this universe he's standing on, we have what look like the neurons of a human mind large and stretch curving from stage left to stage right. Beneath these purple neurons set on a bright purple backdrop is a green chain running through what look like green speakers and this green thread is weaving itself through the bright purple backdrop and into a blue sky where black moons orbit a green planet. On either side of the funky orb Spidey standing on in a green backdrop with a purple urn blazing a red fire we have two sorcerers getting mystic-y on stage left and as yet unnamed magician is cast in a lime green light. He's got both his hands raised with glowing light wrapping both. And on stage right, we've got Marvel's resident master magician, Doctor Strange, just inside of an arched doorframe in his signature high collar cloak, tunic, and tights. He's bathed in a goldenrod glow and both his hands are wrapped in a gold and orange glow. He's sending a blast of this orange glow towards the rival sorcerer. It's safe to say we're not in Kansas anymore. Beneath all this, we get a caption box. This could be called our Be Nice to Stevie Ditko issue. We wanted to feature a really offbeat yarn for Spidey's annual, and Steve Arino dreamed this one up. The fact that he also draws Doc Strange may have had something to do with it. So ready or not, here we go. We turn the page. Page two opens with a caption box. There are eight million stories in the big city, but you've never seen any like this one. As the shades of night begin to fall, a silent figure prowls overhead, thus, does your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man make his appointed rounds? Dot, dot, dot. Exclamation point! Spidey, suited and booted, is standing crouched on a sheer wall overlooking a diner with an exclamation point sign hanging from the building and people moving up and down the street below. I guess this diner is called Exclamation Point! Cars are passing, of course. There's a water tower on the roof and darkness is indeed beginning to fall over the city. Spidey wants action, thinking he should have just stayed home with a good book or even a bad one. Spidey's a reader. He doesn't care. He thinks he's in Dolesville. Population? The loneliest number. And that on nights like this, he's about as useful as a secondhand tube of dinosaur repellent. Leaping from the wall and web-swinging away, he hopes he can at least find a little old lady to help cross the street so the night isn't a total wash. But in another part of town, a situation is about to develop which will soon embroil the costume teenager in one of the most fantastic battles of his life. Let's watch this tall, silent stranger as he walks toward the unknown. Dot, dot, dot. Exclamation point! We get a man in a green suit and hat walking past a guy in a newsy cap with a cigarette in his mouth, leaning on the outer wall of a seedy-looking bar with his hands in his pockets. The man in green has his back to us, so he's walking away from us towards the entrance of the bar, and he's thinking he's witnessing a typical barroom brawl, and that maybe here, he'll find what he seeks. But this guy clearly doesn't know what typical means or the brawls that he's in in bars are just bananas because no less than three men come flying through the broken front door of the bar like they've been hurled from it followed by shot glasses and mugs. And these are not small sized men. On three, the man in green enters the bar and we see he's wearing a silver coif beneath his green hat like he's a knight in King Arthur's court. He's got a pencil thin white mustache, bushy white eyebrows, a white goatee and two points, and a monocle, and the scene that meets his eyes, glassed or otherwise, bedlam. There are two giant bruisers, both at least six feet five, both at least 300 pounds, all muscle. One's wearing a Sandman striped green t-shirt, tan pants, and brown loafers. The other's wearing a white shirt, maroon pants, and brown loafers. They're back to back and brawling with every other man in the bar. 
as Monocle Eye in the green suit thinks, two savage bullies, powerful, rough, proud of their strength, and sorely lacking in intelligence. They will do just fine. We watch Green Shirt send the red-shirted, blue-slack man flying, saying he and his buddy said they could beat anyone in this bar, and they meant it. His buddy doesn't say a word. A man in a blue t-shirt has just leapt onto his back, gripping a chair. But that was a mistake, because White Shirt clubs him off, and lifting a brown-shirted man from his feet with his left hand, throws a straight right, sending a man flying. There are broken chairs everywhere, overturned mugs, a bartender hiding low behind the counter, a gray-shirted man running to get out of the warpath, and a guy with gray hair, his shirt in tatters, is on his butt, his arm slung over an overturned table, and he is astounded by the strength of these two men. Phew, it would take a regiment to stop those two. They're like a couple of tigers. The Tiger Bros mauling the goons in the Third Street Bar. Seconds later, after the festivities have ended, dot Dot, dot. Green Suit approaches the Tiger Bros, telling them that he has an offer for them. Their backs to him, the Tiger Bros don't have time to listen to what he has to say. Green Tiger tells Green Suit to get lost. White Tiger, literally dusting off his hands, says the fight was too easy and wishes they had another dozen guys to spar with. Green Tiger, noticing Green Suit hasn't left, tells the man to get lost again. But Green Suit refuses. He calls them fools, telling them that he gives the orders and that he's decided these two men are going to work for him. And the Tiger Bros throw their heads back, roaring with laughter. White Tiger says, Wake! Hey, did you hear that awful word he used? I wonder what it means. Green Tiger chimes in, He's asking for a fat lip, and he'll get it as soon as I stop laughing. But suddenly, the low-voiced stranger's eyes seem to burn with an unearthly brilliance as a hypnotic bolt of sheer force blazes out, shattering the air about him. Dot, 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 exclamation point! The man's head is now cast in a fiery red glow as he screams for silence, saying Zandu commands and others obey. Stealing a page from Ringmaster's playbook, he shouts, My will is your will. And in no time at all, has both men hypnotized and locked under his spell to open four. He raises a finger to the sky, saying he'll give them power beyond their wildest dreams, and in return, they'll serve only him. That they won't feel any pain, and they'll never fear anyone ever again. To test his control over the Tiger Bros, he orders White Tiger to punch Green Tiger square across the jaw. And White Tiger does, leaning into the punch too. But Green Tiger, standing in front of the bar, takes the punch, his head barely moving backwards an inch. They are feeling no pain. They are feeling no restrictions. These two were just best friends a second ago, and White Tiger punched his mans in the face, and his mans is like, didn't even feel it. But Zandu's not done. He tells Green Tiger that his fists are now hardened steel and orders the faux Sandman to smash through a countertop, which Green Tiger does easily, splintering it with one punch. Then, satisfied with the result of his hypnotic handiwork, the man called Zandu walks back from whence he came, followed by two powerful, hulking beings whose only will is Zandu's will. Dot, dot, dot. Exclamation point! Moments later, in a strange candlelit chamber, Zandu holds aloft a shimmering, gleaming object. Dot, dot, exclamation point! In the final panel, we see Zandu really loves the color green. Mantis wearing a green shirt, green leggings, his green coif, and now a flowing green cape with lime green interior. As his hypnotized lackeys look on from the background, he raises a golden, glowing wand above his head, shouting that he finally has servants who can help him retrieve the other half of the wand he seeks. So he only has half of a wand. 
And this isn't any ordinary wand. We find out it's the wand of Watum. Zandu says whoever possesses both halves will hold the greatest power of all. On five in a gorgeous panel of Zandu's hand, we see Zandu holds up his half of the wand, a spiked diamond orb with demon-like horns protruding from it on both sides, as he begins monologuing, saying the other half of the artifact was taken from another dimension by Doctor Strange. Zandu goes on to say that once he takes the other half from Strange, he'll be the master of the mystic arts, nay, master of all. He orders the Tiger Bros to seek out Doctor Strange and retrieve the other half of the wand, saying that he'll watch them through his hypnotic eyes. And I'm not sure how hypnosis grants you the ability to see through others' eyes, but magic, I guess, you don't question these things. And now, as you might expect, we turn to Doctor Strange as he silently studies a sacred scroll in his shadowy Sanctum Sanctorum. Dot, dot, dot. Exclamation point! Stand the alliteration maestro Lee. My people witness the goat go bad. With incense burning from an orb next to a statue holding a staff and demon skull in a foreground stage right, Marvel's master of mysticism is stage left reading an ancient scroll that contains the secrets of, yeah, of, yeah, Borscht, a beetroot soup with roots in the Ukraine. Strange says there may be something deeper hidden between the lines of the recipe. But before he can dig deeper, the door of his sanctorum bursts open and the tiger bros come charging in, fists raised. Strange whips around, spots them, and shouts the men will pay dearly for this affront. He raises his hands to cast a simple spell, but is shocked to find it doesn't work because the two men's minds are completely blank. Strange thinks that they must be under someone else's control and wonders who. But Strange is a man of action. While he's thinking on this puzzle, he gets magic and creates five doppelganger illusions to confuse the two bruisers racing towards him. And I gotta say, these two may be under the control of Zandu, but Green Tiger is wearing a giant smile like all he wants right now is to get brawling. And the more Strange is, the better. But Zandu, who is present through the power of his hypnotic eyes, can detect the true Doctor Strange as he guides his two human cat's paws. Dot, dot, dot. Exclamation point. The Tiger Bros rush right towards the real Doctor Strange, but Strange ain't soft. He thinks, There is no time for further evasive action. I must do battle, but their strength is inconceivable. Green Tiger throws a left hook, White Tiger throws a right, and Strange, taking a shot to the gut in the face, falls like a sack of potatoes. Ugh! Strange is out cold, but protected by the eye of Agamotto around his neck, he can't be harmed further by the two bruisers. Zandu could care less regardless. He tells the Tiger Bros to tear Strange's Sanctorum apart in search of the other half of the wand, and the mindless muscle heads get right to business, smashing artifacts, ripping cupboards open. All the while, Green Tiger is still smiling. He's hypnotized, but he's clearly living his best life. The two find the other golden half of the wand in the next panel on a small green poof in a cabinet with small graven images surrounding it. They grab it up and make tracks. And now, for those who may think we've forgotten what magazine this is supposed to be, we offer proof that we do remember, because here comes Spidey now. And with the perfect timing only comic books can provide, Spidey swings onto the scene. The scene? The roof of the Sanctum Sanctorum as the Tiger Bros lumber out of an attic window back towards their master. Spidey spots them leaving through the skylight and immediately thinks they're burglars, but that they also seem to be sleepwalkers. Spidey descends on his web line to open seven in front of the bruisers, shouting for them to stay where they are because he's in a mood for a summit conference. Green Tiger's fists go up immediately. So does the smirk on his face as Zandu shouts at them from his hypnotic ether. It's Spider-Man, Spider but we've come, come too far, far to be stopped, stopped now. now. He cannot, he cannot hurt, hurt you. you. Smash, Smash him. him! And we got 
action. The Tiger Bros throw the combo that made quick work of Doctor Strange as Spidey, you know, left hook, right hook, but neither of them connect. Spidey ducking low shouts, hey, are you guys kidding? Taking a poke at me is like instant annihilation. It pops up with a double-fisted uppercut, clubbing both men beneath their chins, screaming, but I guess you want to be able to brag to your grandchildren that you were once knocked out by Spidey, so here's your chance. Spidey connects dead on, but the men barely budge. Spidey hits White Tiger with a left cross next, but he may as well have thrown a bag of feathers for all the good it does him. He thinks he must be slipping before falling backwards into the final panel on the page, huh. dodging a right overhand from White Tiger and throwing a whirling left at Green Tiger, thinking as he does that he knows his punches have the same old whammeroo. The old whammeroo, how do you do? These guys must be powerhouses, he thinks, because the old whammeroo doesn't do squat. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, 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 Infinity page. page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Zandu's eyes scream at the Tiger Bros that Spider-Man can't dodge four tireless thrashing pounding fists forever. He shouts for them to keep swinging, and they do, throwing perfectly synchronized rights that Spidey has to go one foot matrix for. Off balance, Spidey thinks he can't get away before he's knocked off his feet thinking he'll never complain about a slow night again. What's that rule about courting violence, Spidey? He never learns. But if we know anything, Spidey's gonna court the violence. He crashes into a brick wall on one knee, thinking he needs a moment to breathe, goes to play two of the Golden Liability playbook. If this don't work, there's always the shooters, and sprays webbing at Green Tiger from both wrists. But Zandu, his hypnosis eyes now set in a goldenrod space, screams at Green Tiger that the webbing's like tissue paper, and the man, still green, tears Spidey's webbing like one-ply toilet tissue, and the Tiger Bros pour it on. Backing Spidey into a slope wall of a chimney, they open up on a webhead just throwing blows. And with a final thought, even my own spider strength can't take a beating like this forever. I, I'm starting to black out. Everything's spinning around. Spidey's knocked unconscious. In the final panel, the Tiger Bros staring down at him, the eyes of Zandu scream that Spider-Man is of no concern to him anymore and orders the Tiger Bros to bring him the other half of the wand immediately, leaving our hero crumpled. But down doesn't mean out. And page nine opens to our hero, bracing on his left elbow, head down, stage right, as the Tiger Twins march off stage left. Spidey, thinking that things can't end this way, reaches into his belt, pulling out a handy dandy spider tracer. And with the last burst of strength, hurls it towards the Tiger Bro. The little robotic buck sticks to the pant leg of Green Tiger as Spidey thinks, Get it! Now, no matter what happens, after I've rested up, I'll be able to find them in time for round two. But round two is going to have to wait because our hero passes out on the spot. And moments later, dot, dot, dot. Back in Zandu's personal sanctum, Zandu is rushing forward excitedly, his right hand outstretched, his green cape whipping behind him to grab the second half of the wand from White Tiger's outstretched hand. And he's finally got both pieces of the magical wand of Watoon. Joining the two glowing halves with trembling fingers, the evil Zandu finally holds the complete object in one hand feeling a new surge of sheer power pulsating through the very fibers of his being. Raising the wand out in front of him, a hot pink negative space behind, his body glowing shades of green, Zandu screams. It's the greatest source of mystic power ever possessed by one man, and it's mine, mine! And on 10, he gets magic-y right away. He raises the wand and one arrowhead portal and four circular entrances begin opening all around him to other dimensions with fancy green and orange carpeting rolling out to boot. All of the mats have been rolled out. 
This is fancy dimension hopping. The largest portal, sky blue beneath his feet, opens to an entire universe as he screams that now he can create passages to other worlds, other times. He continues his excited screaming into the next panel, this time shouting he can see any place or object a person can think of, and of course, of course, he pulls up a magical television monitor to stare at Doctor Strange's unconscious body inside of the Sanctum Sanctorum. Now, not even the master of mysticism is a match for him, Zandu screams. And to prove it, instead of offing the vulnerable Doctor Strange, he destroys a red statue behind the good Mr. Doctor, bragging about how nothing is safe from him. Slowly, inexorably, relentlessly, I shall destroy my enemies, one by one, until none remain to defy me, and Doctor Strange shall be the first to become my victim. But the man's only destroyed a statue. All that power and lacking imagination? How sad. But he's getting an imaginative idea now because he screams that Doctor Strange will be his first victim. But so engrossed is Zandu in his own sinister plans that he fails to notice the dramatic figure who silently slithers along the wall outside. Dot, dot, dot. Spidey, sticking to a sheer wall of Zandu's hideout, is staring down thinking, A dabbler in black magic! I should have guessed that some such power was behind the two who fought me. So Spidey knows he didn't take that L clean, those two guys should have been knocked out from his Spidey uppercuts. As Zandu, who has the wand of Watum raised, is about to mystically whack Doctor Strange. Then, as the amazing web spinner draws nearer, dot, dot, dot. Spidey is spotted by Zandu in a gorgeous panel. We've got Zandu's head looking over his right shoulder in the lower right corner of the panel up at Spider-Man. And can I just say, I love a villain in a monocle. So distinguished. Stay focused. Back to Zandu screams, what? Spider-Man. And Spidey tells him congratulations that the man's just said the magic words. And we've got action. Zandu sends a blast of energy towards Spidey to open page 11, shouting that Spidey's a fool and doesn't know how lucky he is. Spidey, in a side flip, replies that it's a failing all Spider-Men have. His left leg kicked out, torso twisted so his right arm is just above his left leg. Spidey shoots a blast of webbing towards Zandu, screaming, if you're determined to hit me with that thing, I'm afraid I'll have to take it away from you. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit. Caught by surprise by Spidey's sudden maneuver, Zandu drops the enchanted wand as the quick stick webbing covers his eyes, obscuring his vision. Dot, dot, exclamation point. Zandu screams that he can't see, and in his panic, goes full on Butterfingers, dropping the wand of Watum. But in the next split second, Zandu lashes out with a mighty spell, an incantation of such force and power that the very walls begin to shake. Dot, dot, exclamation point. Zandu, his face covered in the greatest invention in the whole world, his hands glowing yellow, conjures a large orange mystical symbol and starts spitting. Demons, Demons of, of darkness, darkness, in the name of Satanish, by the by flames the of Faltine, let Spider-Man vanish. A yellow portal appears on the next panel and begins erasing our hero from the legs up. His legs now gone up to his thighs, Spidey is staring down at the portal that's erasing him in full-on shock. It, it isn't possible. And yet, unless I've lost my mind, I'm actually fading away. Meanwhile, Zandu's managed to free himself from Spider-Man's webbing and is screaming that our hero will never bother him again. But vanish doesn't mean done, and Spidey doesn't believe that. Devoured up to his waist now, Spidey shouts, Don't bet on it, bright eyes! If I've gotta go, I'm taking your little doohickey with me! And shoots a web line at the wand of Watum that is still laying on the floor. Zandu rushes forward screaming, No! Diving at the wand. But he's too late. Tove opens to the villain crashing into the floor as Spidey disappears into the unknown dimension. Zandu's wasting no time getting the wand back. 
He pushes up from the floor and racing past a blazing fire in a mystical urn, shouts that the Tiger Bros, who are standing docile behind a magical cage, are going to be the ones who get the wand back for him now. Meanwhile, a startled Spider-Man finds himself in a place which could serve as a stage setting for Alice in Wonderland. We've got the splash page in comic in the next panel, as Spidey, balanced on one foot on a large green orb, is surrounded by dimensions all around him. In one of these, a ring planet is in an ocean with floating mountains above it. In another, we have a sea of stalactite and fire behind a large Doric column. There's a rectangular dimension in front of that with purple and blue planets just swirling. And another rectangle on the floor filled with giant blue interconnecting atoms. All of this is taking place in a goldenrod backdrop with swirls of sky blue smoke. And green tubes are racing through the different dimensions. Psychedelic is an understatement. All this is happening and Spidey is admittedly losing his hot rod. Mind. Sheesh. Spidey screams. I, I don't have any idea where I am. But one thing is for sure. It's going to take me more than a 15 cent bus ride to get me back to Forest Hills in New York. Anyway, I'm glad I grabbed this crazy wand. If there's any chance of finding me, Zondu is sure to come after me now. And I'm more caught up in the fact that a New York City bus ride used to be 15 cents. The times they have a changed. On 13, the Tiger Bros enter the world of worlds and Spidey, still on his little planet, spots them, calling them the happiness boys and shouting that they waste no time. But Spidey doesn't either. The men spring towards him and Spidey hits White Tiger with a left cross that he leans all the way into, saying he knows what he's up against now, so he's gonna put up a better fight. Sending White Tiger flying through a circular red cloud and into a world of water beneath them. But Green Tiger is closing in. Too bad, so sad for him because he's just in time to catch a Spidey left uppercut. Spidey thinking the whole time that he's going to have to keep this up until the two goons head for home and then he'll follow them. He throws another left hook at Green Tiger's jaw as they both float in the air. All this is happening and White Tiger is swimming in air now. Madness is an understatement. Nothing is making sense. Meanwhile, in his mystic retreat in Greenwich Village, Doctor Strange finally recovers consciousness. Dot, dot, dot. Strange has pushed up from the floor and immediately begins doing inventory to see what was stolen. He notices his half of the wand of Watum is gone immediately and shouts that the wand must be found. He activates the eye of Agamotto on his neck and a yellow beam blazes from it lighting up the floor to reveal the footprints of the Tiger Bros. On 14, he raises his left hand, snaps his fingers, and in an instant, his cloak of levitation flies to him and wraps itself around Strange's neck. We get a gorgeous panel of Strange flying above the city, his cloak whipping out around him, an evening sky with the full moon hanging low stage left behind him, his searchlight beaming from his neck onto the rooftops below as he monologues to himself. Then, in the name of the all-seeing eye of Agamotto, the wand shall be retrieved, though the vipers of Valtor themselves may block the way. Meanwhile, dot, dot, dot. He knocks White Tiger through another dimension with Green Tiger soaring behind him. Spidey's thinking, this is ridiculous. Here I am, putting up one of the greatest fights of my star-studded career, and there's no one around to applaud and cheer. And what's even worse, these two animated punching bags don't seem to feel a thing. Spidey, deep in his Birkin, throws a left straight punch, the wand of Watoom still clenched in his grip. But unbeknownst to him, Spidey does have someone watching, Zandu with his magic eyes, but he's not here to applaud or cheer, at least not for Spidey. He screams, 
Keep fighting. He has to weaken soon. Good, good. You almost seized it then. And back in his hideout, his shoulders hunched, a golden glow surrounding him, his right fist clenched and raised just beneath his pointed chin hair, Zandu is monologuing something fierce. Once they retrieve it again, I shall bring it back from the beyond, and supreme power shall be mine once more. But Zandu's not alone. Cloaked in scarlet, and this... The panel of the week! Doctor Strange has just arrived on the scene. In all the gorgeousness raging through this issue, panel to panel, this panel is my favorite simply because of how Strange's elbows are bent inside of his cape, draped on him. Like he's got two magical pistols he's waiting to draw. In response to Zandu saying he's going to get the wand back, Strange screams, Never, man of evil, not while Doctor Strange lives. Zandu's like, you found me, how? Strange continues, Many are the powers of the master of the mystic arts. Many indeed. And we get more of them on 15 because we've got magic -y action. Zandu shouts talk is cheap because he can't be beaten in his own sanctum. His hands glowing red, he sends a snake-like beam at Doctor Strange. His hands glowing golden, crafts mystical shields, blocking Zandu's attack, calling the man a betrayer of the Sorcerer's Code. They trade energy beams, but Strange is toying with the man, saying without the element of surprise, it's no problem to shatter Zandu's crude, defensive spells. Zandu thinks it's true, that alone and without help, he has no chance against the Greenwich Village Gypsy Craft. Strange fires bolts of energy from both hands, shouting for Zandu to surrender before his attack is so furious, nothing can stop it. Strange is about to hit this man with the fast and the furious. Zandu takes heed. He's just about to give in when he has a stroke of brilliance. He opens a portal to the world of worlds, bringing back the Tiger Bros, shouting that he's saved, that he's the master again. But they aren't coming alone. White Tiger, holding Spidey's right arm wide, and Green Tiger gripping the left, they pull Spidey back with them through the portal. Spidey's thinking he had to let himself be captured so he could return home, but now he's got to find a new way to break free of their hold. The three men burst through the portal and into the final panel between the sparring Strange and Zandu, Spidey's right hand still gripping the wand of Watoom. Unfortunately for our heroes, however, Green Tiger is gripping Spidey's hand where the wand is, and they just shot into the room right in front of Zandu. Taking advantage of Strange's surprise to open 16, Zandu wrenches the wand from Spidey's grip and shouts at the Tiger Bros to dispose of our hero. Spidey shouts, Oh well, here we go again, and falls backward into the evasive move known as the Drizzy Maneuver. That's right hand pressed flat on the floor, left knee bent, right foot straight, left arm up wide for balance, dodging a downward punch thrown by White Tiger. As Zandu, wand held high, exits stage left, literally. He holds the wand above his head and tiptoes stage left, shouting that now he's got the wand and he's going to destroy Doctor Strange forever. And Doctor Strange doesn't disagree. This is not hero talk. Crafting a magical shield around his left hand, he blocks an incoming magical blast from Zandu, thinking, Even my strongest defenses are as nothing to the awesome force which Zandu now controls. He takes to the air in the next panel, thinking he can't do battle like this, that if he's to endure, he must find another way to fight. As Zandu blasts Strange from his sanctum with the Wand of Watum, knocking the master of the mystical arts outside of the building and out cold. Strange's unconscious body shoots out over the evil sorcerer's domain, flying above the New York City streets in the pale moonlight. But unconscious doesn't mean done when you're the future Sorcerer Supreme. Strange, as slippery as they come, leaves his corporeal body suspended in the air in the moonlight and in his spirit form flies back towards Zandu's sanctum. Strange pokes his ethereal head through a purple wall to open 17, watching Zandu who's created another magical flat screen television. Thinking the wizard is searching for him, Strange decides that he has to find Spider-Man, that with the wall crawler's help, he may still prevail. 
Floating through another wall, Strange arrives on another scene. The scene? Spidey planting huh. on his right hand, throwing an up and undercut with his left as the Tiger Bros rush him from stage left to stage right. They've had Spidey off balance since they've met him. He cannot get it done. Proving, at the very least, Zandu's hypnosis skills are top notch. These dudes are incomprehensibly strong and indefatigable. Translation? Truly tireless. Strange is thinking the same, that the Tiger Bros are merely human machines who are completely unbeatable. Strange has an idea though, an idea that he transfers into the mind of our hero, as Spidey's clocked into a nearby wall by White Tiger. The wire's behind you. Grab them. Let them touch at the proper second. At the urging of Doctor Strange, the lightning fast reflexes of Spider-Man, the brilliant brain of Peter Parker, grasp the thought in a split second, and then dot, 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 exclamation point. Spidey rips the wires from the walls, and in that split-second mission, shots both Tiger Bros in a gorgeous panel of red and pink flashing lights as they rush him. Both men snap to immediately and immediately have questions. Hey, what gives? What's going on here? Search me! How'd we get here? And why am I so blame tired? Spidey watches them, a fist raise in case he has to keep the battle going, as Strange flies by in his astral form, saying they won't bother the webhead again. Before the Tiger Bros collapse on the spot from fatigue without another punch being thrown. Spidey turns from them and races into the final panel, shouting that he's still not sure what all of this is about. But if Zandu's behind it, then he's for me. Strange flies by in his astral form, thinking Spidey is tough, but no match for Zandu, and passes through a wall directly in front of our hero, thinking that he has to find another way to help the webbed wonder. On 18, the master of the mystic arts flies his astral form back into his body, shouting that if he doesn't reach Spider-Man in time, it could be fatal. Meanwhile, Spidey's been itching for a chance to go one-on-one -on -one with Zandu, and he's just rounded a corner to find Zandu still watching his magical television. With a clenched fist, Spidey gets right to business. Okay, Zandu, now it's just you and me. Zandu screams it won't be for long, that when he's finished using the Wand of Watum, it will only be him. But at that split second, another spell is hurled between the two antagonists. Zandu, his right fist wrapped in a golden light, screams. This can only be the work of Strange. He lives! Before barely dodging left of a shot of webbing from the golden liability, he crafts a shield of light to block another beam from Doctor Strange, and firing off one of his own from the Wand of Watoon, Zandu's thinking, My power is the greatest, and yet I am confused between Spider-Man's web and the spells of Doctor Strange. I don't know where to turn first. In the final panel, we see Doctor Strange and Spidey have cornered Zandu as Strange creates a golden shield to block a blast of lightning from Zandu's wand of a tomb, screaming at our hero. That's it, Spider-Man. Keep moving fast. Keep him off balance. It's our only chance against his deadly wand. And Spidey's getting spidery. Not to be outdone, he goes agility on best ever and is flipping upside down, stage right <sighs> to left, dodging two <sighs> bolts of lightning. <sighs> Faster than lightning, spraying webbing at Zandu, shouting to Doctor Strange. I hear you talking, Doc. This is beginning to feel like old times. What old times? The two have only ever come in contact thus far in the first Spidey annual when Pete and Flash Thompson were about to get it shaken on the street and Pete did not speak to the man. But in the midst of the action, we don't got time to wonder what Spidey's talking about. On 19, Doctor Strange screams good shot as Spider-Man webs both of Zandu's feet together, pulling the man off balance. Strange seizes the moment, casting another spell hurled at Zandu, who screams that this isn't fair, that he doesn't have time to think. Does Doc Strange get the hit? Are the host of Hogarth Hori? What? Of course he gets the hit! And the wand of Watum falls from Zandu's hand, who screams he'll be lost without it. He lunges for it, and we get a great panel of his hands 
inches away from the powerful relic, but he doesn't grab it up. He can't because with a thwap of webbing from off panel, Spidey binds the man's hands together. The wand of Watum on the floor, his hands bound by webbing, his body bound by golden light, Zandu's defeated. Doctor Strange screams, Stay where you are, Zandu. The charade has ended. Your power has vanished. Zandu wonders aloud what's going to happen to him. Spidey jumps into the convo saying, Before you answer his queasy question, what are we doing about this gadget? Holding up the wand of Watum. Strange replies that the artifact is too powerfully magical to ever risk it falling into another person's hands again. And activating the eye of Agamotto around his neck, drains the wand of Watum of all its power until it's a harmless, simple ornament. On 20, Strange raises a glowing hand at a terrified Zandu, saying, And now, by the hoary host of Hoggoth, I order to unlock your brain so that I may learn all that exists within your past. And we get a panel showing how Zandu came upon his half of the wand of Watum as Doctor Strange narrates. Ah, it is revealed to me. You were a student of the mystic arts. You learned of Watum's wand and of its power. You stole your half, and once you knew that I had the other half, you plotted to seize it from me. Getting the information he needed, Doctor Strange decides to mind-wipe Zandu, saying the man's evil ambition will fade away forever. In the name of the omnipotent Oster, Doctor Strange declares it. And this is one of the main go-to moves in the Silver Age of comic books, erasing villains' minds when they find out secret identities or do something truly evil. It happened so much, DC Comics did an amazing story about the invasion of mental privacy called Identity Crisis. But I digress. Doctor Strange knocks Zandu out, wipes the man's memory, and turning to Spider-Man, only has good things to say to the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens. You have accredited yourself well this night, costumed one. The friendship of Doctor Strange will be yours, whatever befalls. Spidey replies, Much obliged, Doc. After what I've seen, I sure wouldn't want you for an enemy. If you've ever seen Spider-Man No Way Home, Spidey's proven he can handle Doctor Strange for an enemy. Gave the man the work in a one-on-one -on -one fight. How? In a world of mysticism, Spidey took the Sorcerer Supreme out with geometry, science rules. In the final panel, as Spidey stands heroically on a rooftop with his fists clenched and his shoulders pulled back, the moon bright behind his upper body, Doctor Strange leaps from the rooftop and flying away screams, May the Vasanti watch over thee. To which Spidey replies, And may your amulet never tickle. Thinking to himself, The only thing wrong with this evening is, when I wake up tomorrow, I won't believe a word of it. But we saw it, Spidey. It was real. It was damn real. We get a caption box to close the issue. Special earth-shaking notice. Doctor Strange appeared through the courtesy of the publishers of Strange Tales. Namely, us. The end. And we're out. Doctor Strange has never been one of Marvel's highest sellers, but he's always maintained a huge cult following, and I think it's because of artwork and stories like this. The GOAT Steve Ditko created a universe for the Sorcerer Supreme that was visually stunning and trippy before the bright colors and psychedelic visuals exploded onto the scene as a part of 70s counterculture. I loved reading this issue. If you couldn't tell, I really loved the Tiger Bros, just relentless forces of violence and singular purpose. There was no spotlight on Zandu because this was his very first appearance and what a way to come out. Swinging a magic wand that makes the Elder Wand look like a ruined tree branch with a hypnosis skill level that makes me side-eye the ringmaster for his parlor tricks. What an issue. What a story. What a way to celebrate the second annual. Next episode, we're running through Amazing Spider-Man number 29. An issue that marks the return of the man with the vicious right hand who gave Spidey two losses in one issue, the Scorpion. In a tale labeled, Never Step on a Scorpion, or You Think It's Easy to Dream Up Titles Like This? 
Scorpion's got a score to settle, not only with our hero, but with the man who turned him into the bruising powerhouse he's become, J. Jonah Jameson. And Scorpion didn't come to talk. I promise it's a slugfest and you don't want to miss it. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode, but we do have more me and my friend Pete at the end of these credits. Stay after the, I'm out of here. And listen to me, wobbly, nervous, but as excited as it gets, as I tell the story of Spider-Man from ASM number one and the uncanny threat of the terrible tinkerer from ASM number two. We need patrons in a bad way, so if you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash hspp and sign up under the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now. Patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back, and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, a special thanks to the home team, Parker's Eleven. Sign up now, unlock bonus episodes, vote on bonus episodes, make it 12. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in my friend Pete at gmail.com. And I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. Stay tuned for two more classic Spidey stories. And me, I'm out of here. Me and mine. Best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. With the stage set, let's get into Amazing Spider-Man number one's first story. Spider-Man, March 1963. The cover was penciled by Jack Kirby and inked by Steve Ditko. We have the script of The Amazing Spider-Man number one, written by Stan Lee. The art is by Steve Ditko. As I mentioned, there are two stories in This Amazing Spider-Man number one. The letterers on each are different. So the letterer for The Amazing Spider-Man's first story, Spider-Man, is Johnny D. Let's get into it. The cover of The Amazing Spider-Man number one, it's beautiful. As is often the case with these early covers, the background is light blue. We have Spidey. Spidey looks like he's inside of one of those TSA machines that you get into at the airport, the x-ray machines that you have to put your hands up and it spins around and scans you. He looks like he's in one of those. He's sticking to the plexiglass of it. He's up on the top of it. And he's saying, the Fantastic Four think I'm trapped, but they don't suspect my real power. You know, Spidey's always talking out loud, giving, giving the game away. <laughs> so he's, do he's doing that here. And it's it's nothing new at this point for the wall crawler with me. He's got his hands wide. He's stuck to this trap, apparently, that's what he's calling it. And you have in the background below him, from background to foreground, you have Sue Storm, she's got her hands up, she's racing up the stairs towards him. You have the thing, ben Benjamin Grimm in front of her, he's shaking a fist like, get down from there, kid. And you have Mr. Fantastic just staring and looking up at him. What I love about this cover is that the only person who is eye to eye 
With Spidey, the only person who can see eye to eye is my favorite member of the Fantastic Four, the Human Torch. The Human Torch has flown around the room. There's this great fire trail following the Human Torch. And it extends from where Sue is standing in a loop around the, around the other three members of the Fantastic Four. And he is flying up to meet Spidey. Spidey saying they don't know his real power. The cover says it's two great feature length Spider-Man thrillers. That's a quote. And in the second story, it says on the bottom that the chameleon strikes. Page one, Spidey is as he often does in these early issues, holding a strand of web as he sticks to a white wall behind him. There's blue webbing surrounding him, creating like a spotlight on him. To the left of the page, there are a bunch of fingers pointing and fist shaking. And above these fingers pointing and fist shaking, there are three words. And it says freak, right? And that was an exclamation point. And public menace, an exclamation point. And with all these hands and fists, there's one man inside of all these hands and fists. And by the way, all these hands and fists, these are moneyed people. They have to be moneyed people. Nobody can tell me that these are just regular Joe Schmoes. I think even in the 1962, three times, cufflinks on your wrist is a sign of a little bit more means than others, right? Most of us, most of us regular, regular Joes here, lower than the upper class. We don't just wear cufflinks on a day-to-day -day basis. But all of these fists and fingers and hands pointing, they've all got cufflinks on. So it, it looks to me like high society, no pun intended, are going after the webhead, calling him a freak and a public menace. And there's this one guy. He has both of his fists balled and raised. And they are shaking. He's got conflicts. He's got black hair. He's got the he's got the white hair on the side on his Reed Richards. Whenever I say somebody is on their Reed Richards, it's really just the salt and pepper hair, but it's black on the top and the sides are white. I call it the Reed Richards because ever since I was a kid, I've associated that look with Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four. So if you ever hear me say they're on their Reed Richards, that's all I'm referring to. It's just hair. It's black and white hair, like a like a black and white cookie. Gotta love the cookie. So. We have a couple of boxes here and the first is saying much like the vultures popularity in number seven that we got into in the bonus issue spidey's popularity has led to him returning in his own title so marvel in the beginning in the early days was really trying to cater to and give the people what they wanted i'm not saying that's that that's not what they're doing now at all i'm i'm only talking about these early days and the more I read these comics, the more I'm like, wow, Marvel was really making the decision based off of fan wants. And that's awesome. It's awesome to see because I want to be a fan of someone of, of, of someone and some things that respect my opinion. You don't always have to take my opinion, but the fact that you respect and you try to honor it when you see that it's a good opinion, that means a lot to me. So I'm going to read the I'm going to read the big box here. It says, quote, sure. You've read many stories about many different magazine heroes, but there's never been a story like this one because there's never been a hero like Spider-Man. So we turn the page and the story opens. Pete's in his room. He's still got his web shooters on. He's still got his Spider-Man tights on. He's still got his Spider-Man boots on, but he's throwing his costume into his closet. The top half of his costume, his shirt, his gloves, his mask. He's throwing those into the closet. And he's saying that he wished there wasn't such a thing as his Spider-Man costume because Uncle Ben is dead and it was all his fault. We get the next panel and it's this beautiful panel with a lot going on in such a small square. So shout out to Steve Ditko for getting this all in here. Pete's doing a recap of the story. 
He's holding his glasses as he tells it. He says, you know, it started when he was bitten by a spider. He got the spider's powers. And we see Pete, we see an image of him bit on the hand. We see an image of him scaling the wall. We see an image of, of him as Spider-Man crawling down a wall, holding a web. He says that he got into show business because of his powers to cash in. Because remember, Spidey wanted to be Beyonce. Spyonce. The next panel we see, he says that while he was out showboating and gallivanting and, and trying to be a star, a burglar broke into his house and killed his Uncle Benny. We get a picture of this mugger. They have a gun in their hand. The gun is going off. Aunt May has a look of terror, like surprise and terror on her face. The next panel, we see Spidey Webb swinging, saying that he won't escape Spider-Man. He followed the guy to the warehouse. And the last part of this long panel, we see Spidey crawling down the wall, saying that he caught the guy and he turned him over to the police. So that is the beauty of this second page, this really the first page of the story. They did a recap of Spidey's powers and what he's doing with them in three panels. Two smalls and one long. I think that's a phenomenal job of storytelling. The last thing said in this panel is the burglar, the murderer of Uncle Ben saying, you ain't human. Spidey feels human though because we get to the next panel. He's saying Uncle Ben is gone and he and Aunt May are all alone. He's walking down the stairs. Pete's got on his black vest. He's got on his white shirt. He's got on a red tie with horizontal stripes. He's got on green slacks. This is astounding to me i don't understand why we don't stop the presses and somebody address the fact that pete finally has on some different slacks they're green he's walking down the stairs of his house he comes up into the next panel and he's behind the curtain so aunt may can't see him and aunt may is telling the landlord she'll get him the rent all he has to do is wait one more week pete says what's worse than aunt may and i being alone is now we have no money so how are we going to pay these bills? We get to the next page and, and Pete address, Pete's addressing Aunt May. Aunt May's wearing purple. Aunt May's wearing purple a lot in the early days. And I love it because purple is a sign of royalty. And to me, Aunt May is a queen. So Aunt May's wearing purple. She, you know, she has her full white hair. She's got on her apron. And it looks like they're in like their foyer. There's a plant in the foreground in front of them. And Pete has like a dejected look on his face. Aunt May's holding his shoulders. And Pete's saying he has to drop out of school. He has to drop out of school and get a job because he has to help her pay the bills. A lot of pressure on his on his on his mind right now and on his shoulders. And Aunt May says, absolutely not. Uncle Ben dreamed of you becoming a scientist one day and you're going to become that scientist. In layman's terms, you're going to school, kid. You're going to school. And Aunt May is much like my Nana in that regard, because when I was a kid, my Nana didn't like us missing too much school. One time I was playing touch football. Someone ran up from behind me and pushed me and I slid on the ground. We, you know, you play on concrete because kids will be kids. I slid into a like a hard iron post and split my head open. My forehead was split open to the bone. Everything plays out. <laughs> my grandmother takes me to the hospital. I get stitches. I'm back in school next day. No problem. You do not miss school with the bacitracin cream. I had, you know, the anti-inflammatories and all that. I was puffed and swollen shut like Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame, but I was in school. I didn't miss school. You don't play that. I didn't, I didn't miss I didn't miss a day of school from junior high school until I think my sophomore year in high school. And you know, I'm not I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying, no, you don't get to drop out. You go into school. Ironically, I did drop out. I went back later and got all the necessary things that I needed as far as education is concerned but in the beginning my nana wasn't playing that she was much like aunt may you ain't dropping out you're going to school 
That's what she's telling Pete. And Pete, in the next panel, he's thinking, I have to find some way to help. In the next three panels, we see what Pete's thinking. And Pete is thinking about becoming an unstoppable crook. In the first panel, we see him web, swing, uh, web shooting a safe and like stealing the contents of a safe. He's dangling upside down outside of a window at Spidey. In the panel after that, he's up on a roof of what looks like maybe a check cashing place. There's a balding guy beneath him opening the safe, taking money out, and he's hiding. He's going to wait till the guy leaves and he's going to rob the joint. In that same panel, we see him sticking on a wall outside of an armored truck and he's webbing money bags up to himself. And he's saying, any amount of money could be mine just for the taking. And that's a direct quote. But in the following panel, his reality sets in. Right, and it's a merger of Peter Parker and Spider-Man at this point because he's in prison with his glasses on and his Spidey costume, no mask. And Aunt May is outside of the prison bars and she has a handkerchief to her face and she's crying. And this is the thought that tells Pete, I can't do this. I'm not a thief, I'm not a criminal. This can't be the road that I take to getting back on my feet. I can't go this route because Aunt May would not survive. Pete decides instead that there's only one way for him to get the money that he needs to help support Aunt May, and it has to be from him performing again. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to call his booking agent, the guy in the silk in the silk hat who put him on, and he's going to get back on top. He's going to he's going to go back to his life as Spiance. A few days later at school, in the next panel, we see it has to be science class because Pete is in a lab coat. He has a the test tube in one hand. He's eyeing it. He has his measuring beaker in the other, and the kids behind them, they're not working at all. At all. We have the blonde, the young blonde lady there again, the young blonde girl. They're all 15, so she's a blonde girl. We have the young blonde girl there again. She's wearing red. They still have a name drop, so I'm not going to name drop. And next to her, there's this brown haired guy, and he's saying, let's all go, let's all go to the show at the town hall tonight. Spidey's performing. Blondie says, the admission is only $1. And Pete is the only one who says, you know, count me out, kids. I can't make it. But nobody invited Pete. And in that moment, that's a little bit of arrogant of Pete to assume that all these kids that he knows don't like him would invite him to this thing. But he says, count me out, kids. I can't make it. In the next scene, Blondie says, you know, we, we should have known. We should have known he wasn't going to come. Of course he'd rather study. We have this kid in a black sweater. You know, his white, his white button up is poking out out of it. It looks like there's like an, a circle on his chest. This kid looks like the spitting image of Johnny Carson. So I wonder if Steve Ditko was a, a, was a fan of Johnny Carson. And this Johnny Carson kid, this Johnny Carson kid says, quote, Ah, uh, who needs that walking bookworm anyway? Huh? That was my Johnny Carson. I never said it was good. And they say it'll be more fun without him. And of course, you know, now Peter's shoulders are hunched. He's holding the test tube in his hand and he's looking back at the move with his head slightly lowered. Like, I didn't really want to even go anyway. But we turn the page and we see, of course, Pete can't go. Pete is the Spider-Man. So he's thinking as he's performing, you know, he's sticking to the wall with one hand and swinging forward. He's webbing his web fluid and, you know, he's crawling down a line of webbing and he's crawling down a wall and he's doing all these different tricks. Crowd reaction shot. Of course, you have people again, their mouths wide open. They are amazed at the sensational, spectacular, fantastic Spider-Man. And while Spidey's doing all this, he says, of course I couldn't be in the crowd. I'm on the stage. I am the show. So we move forward. The show ends and Spidey goes to his booking agent. He says, you know, I'd like my money. And the booking agent says, going forward, I have to pay you with a check. So you have to tell me your name. Spidey says, absolutely not. Like nobody can know that I'm Peter Parker underneath this mask. I think it's partly because 
he interfered in he interfered in the police investigation with the murderer of Uncle Ben. And it doesn't matter who you are that's still a crime in, in this universe to essentially be a vigilante. So he's not giving away his identity. Maybe he's thinking, I don't know if I'll ever have to do that again and, and help again in that way. And I don't want people knowing who I am. And at the same time, you said it yourself, sir. It's great showmanship. I'm not giving that up. But these checks have to be made for income tax purposes. So Spidey has to give his name. Spidey says, look, just make the check out to Spider-Man and don't worry about it. His booking agent says, all right, you're going to have a tough time cashing it. And, you know, Spidey says, we'll see about that. He goes to a check cashing place and <laughs> the guy says, I have to see some identification. Immediately, as, as Spidey hands him the check, I need to see some identification. And Spidey's saying, you know, I'm wearing the costume. The guy makes a very valid point. Anybody can wear a costume, right? Do you have a social security card? Do you have a driver's license in the name of Spider-Man? And Spidey says, no, I don't. So Spidey can't cast this check. In the next panel, we see J. Jonah Jameson on his Reed Richards with his black hair with the white temples. He's hunched over a typewriter. We can tell he's clicking away. His shoulders are hunched. So he's hunched over and he's saying that when he's through, Spider-Man is going to be run out of town. Spidey must routinely come in through the window of his booking agent's office. His booking agent doesn't even seem surprised that Spidey is crawling through the window. His booking agent gets straight to business. His booking agent says, might as well go back to where you came from. You're not going to be getting any more shows. And Spidey's, Spidey's, you know, of course he questions it. He says, what happened? We turn the page and Spidey is holding a Daily Bugle in his hand. I assume it's a Daily Bugle just because J. Jonah Jameson said he was going to go on an all-out campaign. And this headline of the Daily Bugle says, Spider-Man, menace. The booking agent tells him, you won't be able to show your face and I wouldn't be surprised if the cops come after you at some point. And Spidey says, what have I done to anyone to make them hold this against me? Why does this guy have a beef with me? In the next panel, we see why J. Jonah Jameson has a beef with him. He's going on a public speaking tour to essentially just blast Spider-Man. In the first panel, Jonah's at a podium. He's pointing to a picture that he's plastered up on the wall behind him of Spidey, you know, giving someone a right cross. It looks like the burglar. I don't know how Jonah got a picture of Spidey in the warehouse giving this burglar the right cross, but Spidey's giving this burglar a right cross behind him. And Jonah's saying, quote, we cannot allow that mask menace to take the law into his own hands. He is a bad influence on our youngsters. I don't think the people behind him believe it. You know, we have two ladies sitting here, middle-aged women. They have on their Sunday hats that, you know, in the 60s, people wore these beautiful hats all the time. So they have on these beautiful hats. And there's a, a white-haired guy there. They look nonplussed by everything that Jameson's saying. But Jameson is not done. The next panel, we get half his face in the foreground. We have Sw Spidey swinging behind him. And he's saying children are going to try to impersonate this Spider-Man. And he says, what happens if these children make a hero out of this inhuman monster? The next panel, we see Spider-Man looming large and dangerously over the city. He is a giant and the city is small. And we have people looking up at him screaming, much like people look up and scream at Godzilla. Now, there's a panel box here and J. Jonah Jameson is saying that Spidey should be outlawed. That there's no place for a dangerous person like this in the city. In the very next panel, we see what I believe is the real cause of Jameson's annoyance and anger with the amazing Spider-Man. J. Jonah Jameson is holding up a picture of his son, John Jameson III. And his son is an astronaut. His son took the picture with his astronaut helmet on. That seems very weird to do. Anytime I think about astronauts in their, in their pictures, 
they always seem to be holding the helmets under their arm. But not John Jameson. John Jameson took the picture with, with his helmet on. He doesn't care. He's a rebel with a cause, right? Astronauting is his cause. And Jay Jonah is saying, this is a real hero. He's a test pilot. He's an astronaut. He's put the time in to become this great thing. And I think that's J. Jonah Jameson's real beef because he doesn't know who Spider-Man is or how Spider-Man came about these powers. He thinks that Spidey didn't put any work in to be great. So why all the love and affection and attention when my son has done the work as a child, done the work as a teenager, and then done the work as an adult to become one of the hardest professions on the earth. There are not so many people who have nodded in an astro sense. And John Jameson is one of them. And I think that's JJ's real beef with Spider-Man. The next scene we see Pete, he's at a newsstand. He's saying he doesn't understand how other superhumans like the Fantastic Four and Ant-Man live the lives that they live and are compensated for it without being bothered. And the newspaper stand operator says, look, man, I don't even believe Spidey's real. I believe that it's this is all media hype. This is all show. We turn the panel and Pete is still holding a newspaper and he's saying, if I can't get a job as Spider-Man, well, then I'm just going to have to get a part-time job as Peter Parker. So it, it's not all about his powers. He's not relying on his powers to save him in this situation. He's, he's going option by option as a person who is a scientist. Pete likes to plan things out and go step by step from the best options and get progressively. And if I have to, okay, if I have to take a little bit off the top, then I'll take it off. Okay, I couldn't be Spider-Man the performer. Fine. Let me, let me try to get a job as Peter Parker part-time because Aunt May won't let me have a full-time job. Apparently, I have to go to school to live in her house. The nerve. The next panel we see, Pete's found a job. He goes to apply for it, and it's, it's a job in a kitchen, and it's a big, burly, beefy dude. He's got an apron on. He's got one of those small, flat chef hats on. He's got a sleeveless shirt on. He's got on brown pants. This is a blue collar worker ladies and gentlemen he's a he's a little bit burly too he like he a little he's stocky and he tells pete what are you doing here kid i advertise for a man <laughs> and pete says but but pete doesn't say anything else on the corner we have a newsie if you're not familiar newsies were a group of kids i don't know when they started but they were up until at least the 1960s and these kids essentially sell newspapers right this is how we got our news back then there were no smartphones there was no giant billboard in times square with a banner running it was none of that you had these kids running around with stacks of newspapers selling them on different corners it was much more people finding out the news on the street you really had to be on the street to get the news that's that's what it was back then and we have this newsie here and this newsie to me has the voice of Batman. The iteration of Batman on screen that I think is the best ever, uh, Christian Bale. This newsie has this voice of Batman because Christian Bale, if you've ever seen the Broadway play that became a Disney movie, The Newsies, Christian Bale is the star of that movie. Batman was a newsie. Pete's trying to get this job. He's being, he's being told no. And behind him, newsie says, Extra, John Jameson about to orbit Earth in rocket that's what's going down pete's struggling trying to find a job john jameson's about to go up in, in a rocket things are looking up for john jameson and down for pete the next panel we see pete looks over his shoulder randomly and he sees his aunt may she has on orange hat with a little feather in it and he's wondering where she's going she has her perch clutch purse clutched in her hands and he's going to follow her he follows her and aunt may goes to a pawn shop and aunt may is pawning her jewelry. It was jewelry in her clutch bag. Pete says, 
she must be desperate. She doesn't want me to know. She, she's not even telling me. She doesn't want me to worry. You know, there's no there's no dialogue between Aunt May and the man. And Aunt May doesn't seem particularly upset about it either. There's actually, you know, there's an indifferent look on her face like this needs to be done. As, you know, she has her palm open and the jury is on the counter. And the guy, he has a cigar in his mouth. He's got white hair. He's balding. He has on a brown suit with basic brown suit and vest combo. And there's this indifferent look on her face. Of course, I think that Aunt May would love to keep it. But in the next panel, we see there's a genuine smile of accomplishment. Like, yes, I did this for my family. And she has a small smile on her face and mad bills in her hand. I don't know what the guy paid her for her jewelry, but Aunt May must have had something pretty good because there, there's a wad of cash in her hand. It's not, it's not a couple bills. It looks like a wad of cash. It's beautifully drawn. And the smile on her face is so beautiful. That's great. Good job, Steve Ditko, on that one. And Pete's behind her still with the paper in his hand and he's saying she's doing it all for me and i can't even help her i can't even find a job so pete's just beating himself up he feels worthless and i think most of it is because he's wearing these green slacks and pete pete is the blue slacks baby it's the blue slacks for you you know that the next panel we have bat newsy he's back he's saying quote extra john jameson son of the publisher of the daily bugle about to orbit earth Extra. And Spidey with a, a, a clenched fist in the foreground. He's shaking his fist and he's saying it's all his fault. You know, in regards to J. Jonah. You know, because of this guy, who I don't even know, I can't perform as Spider-Man anymore. But Pete's not dejected. Pete's angry. The next scene, we see Pete slamming his fist into the wall. He's saying he can't give up. He's got to earn some money somehow. He's saying he can't let Aunt May down. This part I don't understand. He says... Quote, even if it means the Spider-Man will again stalk the city by night. I don't understand what that means, Pete. What are you gonna be? Are you gonna be a criminal? You said you wouldn't do that. Very strange. And this brings part one of the Spider-Man story to a close. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. Part two opens and we see Pete, he's at a space shuttle launch. This seemed odd to me as a child, but being an adult and especially working on this podcast, I wanted to know kind of what was going on in history during 1962. And space shuttle launches were a very big deal in 1962, excuse me. The space race was as integral to the Cold War as the arms race was. If you think about it, a space shuttle was really just a missile. These things went hand in hand. There was also a lot of trial and error. So in 1962, there were at least two space shuttle launches a month with John Glenn's name being prominent. John Glenn, the famous American astronaut, on most of them as he constantly broke different height records for America. So this is not unusual in 1962 to see Peter Parker or Spider-Man at a space shuttle launch. So anyways, Peter's at this space shuttle launch because it's free. And we have a bunch of people in the crowd as always. There's one guy, he's got on a blue suit, a blue shirt, a blue tie, and a brown hat. He's living his life on the edge says it must take a lot of courage to go up in one of those babies. I agree with that. I think astronauts are very brave. All the different things that could go wrong in space travel, again, it's that explorer's mentality. An explorer has to have great courage knowing that I'm taking a step out of all of the comfort and safety that 
people and the world have provided for me. Take the safety of Mother Earth away from us and it really comes down to our own ingenuity at that point. And our own ingenuity can fail us. So it takes great courage, in my opinion, to be an astronaut. Shout out to all the astronauts out there. Blue Suit Brown Hat is saying, it, it takes a lot of courage to go up in one of those babies. We have an orange haired guy. I'm gonna start calling them cherry blondes or strawberry blondes just because I wanna give props to them being redheads, but it's giving me that cherry blonde, strawberry blonde feel. You know, so we have a strawberry blonde hair. He's a little bit stylish. You got on a blue suit. He has like on a, a darker blue beneath it. So if you do two different colors in that way, I feel like it works. He's saying he'll bet even Spider-Man would think twice before volunteering for the ride. And he's saying this to Peter Parker and Peter Parker saying, I suppose so. A lot of people would think to themselves, oh, you have no idea or something like that. But Pete's got nothing to prove to this stranger. And the last thing on this panel, we see a large space shuttle. There's steam coming out of it from the bottom. It's about to go off. You have all of these military people looking up at it. An announcer is saying, quote, 15 minutes to blast off all unauthorized personnel. Clear the field. Ground control to Colonel John. Commencing countdown. Engines on. That's what's happening there. We get to the next panel and it's JJ with his son John. His son John, of course, has the helmet on. John Jameson is not pulling his helmet off, baby. John Jameson, Bubble Boy, is saying he's going to do his best to make his father proud. He promises that he will. There's a general next to him. He's saying, good luck to you, boy. The next shot, we see the capsule with John Jameson inside. It gets launched into orbit, and they're saying the launch was perfect. And the capsule looks like one of those smart bulbs, that it has the flat bottom, the, you know, the light bulbs, that it has that flat bottom and then the triangular cone shape leading to where you screw it into the light fixture. So it looks like a, a, a smart light bulb if you want a visual. A gray smart light bulb. The next page we see on the infinity page, disaster strike. The first panel, the dialogue box. It says a forward guidance package came loose and now the capsule is spiraling to earth. In the next panel, we see it spiraling to earth. Inside the capsule, John Jameson saying he's lost control. We get a picture of him inside the capsule, helmet on. He's saying that he has no guidance. Shout out to Drake. There's no way for him to direct the capsule. The next scene, we see a couple of generals. We see ground control and we see Jay Jonah in a room. Ground control is telling one of the generals that a 24-3B component has broken loose. And this is why the shuttle lost control and John Jameson can't get it to follow his steering instruction. The next panel, JJ has a look of just fear on his face. Of course, it's his son. JJ has on a beautiful purple pinstripe suit, though. Go ahead, JJ. Purple pinstripe suit, orange tie. I'm, dis I'm disrespectful. My bias and opinions against J. Jonah have made me forget to point out that he is a very stylish man. Purple pinstripe suit. You not, you're not seeing that. You're not seeing that in the street anymore. You're not seeing a man with the confidence to pull off a purple pinstripe suit. But this man in a purple pinstripe suit, he has worry on his face. This 24-3B component has broken loose and his son is inside. In the next panel, we see the generals. They're all saying without that component, the capsule is going to go spiraling towards the earth until it crashes into the earth. We've got a scientist. He walks up, gray hair, blue suit, blue tie, white shirt, glasses. He says, we don't have much time. If we don't make a move, John Jameson is doomed. So this is not the time for worry. This is the time for action. And that's... That's a real thing for uh, mission control and ground control. When something goes wrong, ground control doesn't panic. Ground control doesn't say, oh, what are we going to do? Ground control says, what are we going to do? Ground control really does 
keep a cool head under fire. They throw out solutions, they, they debate quickly, and they take decisive action. And if it doesn't work, they try something else. If the pressure was on, I think I could handle it, but I have never handled it, so it's easy to say what you think you can do. Anyways, this guy from Ground Control, he's not messing around. He comes up with an idea immediately. We're gonna drop a steel mesh net on a parachute. This net is gonna hit this capsule, wrap it up, it'll come down to earth on that parachute connected to the steel mesh net. They give it a go, the capsule shoots by the net completely. It doesn't touch it at all. What does gray-haired glasses scientist say? A complete miss. We've gotta find a better way. This is it, we, we don't have time to panic. We only have time to keep coming up with more plans. So what's next? While that's happening, Peter Parker has stashed his Spider-Man costume in a random locker at the space shuttle launch. I don't know how Pete gets away with these things. Nobody went into this locker that wasn't his and found this Spider-Man costume. And why would he even have the Spider-Man costume in the locker? Was Pete there before? Hmm, suspicions being raised. What's going on with Pete? Anyway, he grabs his Spider-Man costume. He's saying there's only one person who can save John Jameson. Spidey is getting suited and booted. You know how it goes. Mask on, shirt on, pants on. I find this panel so comical because Ditko drew Spidey's belly button. Like Spidey is pulling his costume down and he's at that point where there's still a little skin exposed and Spidey's got a solid any. Anyways, Spidey's on the scene now. He's suited, he's booted. The next, the next scene, we see him running across cables on the rooftops of this military installation. And he's saying he's gotta get to the missile control center. He's running along power lines and cables. The next panel, he's crawling down the window inside of the office. People are talking. One says, we have a spare 24-3B guidance unit here right now. Who's going to get it to Jameson? We have no one to get it to Jameson. And Spidey says, you're wrong. There's a way, right? He crawls up to the window. We get a scene. We see that it's JJ in the room with military brass. And this has to be a, a military man who's high up because he has hardware on his heart. That's a lot of badges, sir. But Spidey says, you're wrong. There's a way. He crawls in through the window. He takes the he takes the 24-3B guidance unit and he says, let me let me take this. Right? I'll get it on the capsule somehow. This military man, this I assume general, I have a lot of respect for this general because knowing that he's fresh out of ideas, he knows mission control is doing whatever they're doing, but it's looking bleak on their side. And with nothing to lose except the extra 24-3B component, he tells Spidey, quote, very well, we have nothing to lose. There is no way we can do it. He acknowledges his lack of in this situation. And a lot of people in, in, in positions of power refuse to acknowledge their lack of in a situation, their lack of knowledge, their lack of resources, their lack of essentially the ability to get it done. And again, this isn't odd to me because Spider-Man was, quote, the sensation of the nation. So people know him. Everybody's not a New Yorker. So with that in mind, this general may not read the Daily Bugle and have that negative opinion of, of Spidey that... J. Jonah Jameson does. And we see it here when he says, he, give, he gives Spidey the green light, you go do it. We can't, so you go do it. And I respect that general a lot. Shout out to people in positions of power who know when to step aside. This general has all the faith in Spidey. And of course, J. Jonah has none. He's pointing his finger at Spidey. He's saying, this guy's just trying to grab a headline. He's just a grandstanding publicity seeking spider. Anyways, the next panel, Spidey's jumping out of the window. He tells, he tells Jameson, quote, instead of flapping your lips, mister, just watch and see what I can do. And Jameson screams, wait. The next panel, we have Spidey web swinging. He says he has to get to the jet fast because the capsule is lowering. Every second is coming closer and closer to Earth. The next panel we see, there's no way around it. Spidey commits a little bit of assault. 
I'm not sure if it's battery, but he webs a soldier up telling who's telling him to identify himself. He says there's no time for that. Webs the guy up, he keeps it moving. The very next second, he convinces a pilot to commandeer a jet so they can go fly towards the shuttle. And again, Jameson has no faith in Spidey, but this pilot, he's saying that he'll probably be grounded forever for helping Spidey. So Spidey's hits the ride with this pilot, and the pilot is saying that Spidey may be the only person who can save this poor Joker. So he's willing to take a chance on that. This is the second time we've seen a little bit of nobleness from the military in the sense of, yeah, there are orders, but in this moment right now, we're gonna do what's necessary to save this person's life, and whatever consequences that I have to take with that, I'm down for it. It's not a small thing to be in the military and to ignore an order or to break protocol. It's a huge thing, but these people, there are some things bigger than the rules, especially when the rules are preventing you from helping someone. And that's how they're on it. The jet has caught up to the capsule. The capsule's flying by. They're essentially making a beeline towards it. And you see in the next panel, the cockpit glass opens up and Spidey's coming out of the cockpit and the pilot's asking him, you know, what are we going to do? We can't catch it. What are we going to do? And Spidey's like, we don't have to catch it. The final panel on the page, Spidey's standing on top of this jet plane. It's all grass beneath them, you know, the world below. They're getting closer and closer to the earth. And the shuttle is coming in from the left side of the panel, speeding. There are a lot of movement lines behind it. I imagine there's a lot of like, from like wind whipping by. I imagine that's happening. There are a lot of clouds, so I imagine it's very hard to breathe. Spidey says he's got one shot, but Spidey only needs one shot. To me, Spidey doesn't miss. Unless it's uh, unless it's Amazing Spider-Man number seven. Then Spidey may miss. Bonus episode number one on Patreon.com slash HSPP. The next page we see Spidey screams, here goes. He shoots his web. We still don't get that legendary sound. This time, we're getting closer though. This time we get a twing. Shoots the web, gets the hit. He's, he's tagged the back of the capsule as, as it's flying by. And in the next panel, we see him just hanging on for dear life. I looked it up, and the average speed of one of these capsules is 17,600 miles per hour. I'm not saying it's going anywhere near that fast, as it hasn't reached orbit, and that's that's its orbiting speed. But the thing is moving, because it's faster than the jet. And Spidey is saying that it's taking all of his spider strength to hang on. He says he mustn't let go. And we get this beautiful panel of him of him holding on with both hands. Once a jet drops his payload and it makes that bank to go away, that's happening. The jet's flying out of the picture. The capsule's flying towards the edge of the, of the picture. And I know Spidey is under great stress. Next panel, he says he has to pull himself up. He's fighting against wind resistance. Even with his Spidey strength, he's barely hanging on. So that's how I know he may not be going, he may not be going that 17,006, but he's moving at a great speed. While he's talking, he's climbing. In the next panel, we see he reaches to the part of the capsule that looks like the light bulb in a smart light. So he reaches that part. He says it's losing altitude dangerously. He says he's not sure if he can attach 24-3B component in time. That's the end of part two of the Spider-Man story. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend P. Part three opens to Spidey's success. He's saying the 24-3B slid on as smooth as silk. And inside the capsule, we see John Jameson saying he's regained control of the shuttle. He's gonna pop the parachute and he's gonna land it immediately. And in the final scene, we see the parachute pop. We see Spidey still on the capsule as it's coming down to earth. 
at a much slower speed now because of the parachute and Spidey is saying he's safe, I did it. And I would imagine he would be very proud. It's not every day you get to save the life of an astronaut. The next page, first panel, we see the military brass, we see the ground control agent, he's got the headset on, he's got brown hair, he's got a smile on his face. He's saying Spider-Man succeeded, the capsule is landing, everything's good, ground control to Colonel John, we're all right. You know, I imagine cheering, I imagine papers being tossed up in the air. JJ, he's leaning towards the ground control guy, he's saying, my boy, he's safe. So JJ's excited, everybody's excited. This is, this is one of those wonderful moments, you have to cue the... You have to cue the victory music. We see Spidey hopping off of the hopping off of the capsule, saying he he bets that no living person has ever ridden on, on on the outside of a capsule the way he just has. And Spidey may be right. We see him running away from the scene. Spidey says, "Quote: I better make myself scarce now. I'd just be embarrassed if everyone wants to congratulate me and make a big fuss about what I've done." When Spidey's performing, he's he lives for the applause. But when Spidey's doing good deeds of his own volition for nothing, and I consider that a pure good deed in the sense of, okay, I helped, and I get, I'm gonna get out of here, all right? I'm not doing this for the pat on the back or the hand claps. I'm doing this because I was in the right place at the right time, and I have power. It's my responsibility to help if I can. And that's what Spidey's about. Next panel we see, Pete thinks that because of this great deed that he's just done, the ledger has been wiped clear between him and Jameson. I just saved this guy's son's life. He can't still think that I'm the menace that he says I am. But the next panel, we see Pete is wholly mistaken. Pete's got his black, he's got his black vest back on, he's got his white shirt back on, he's got his glasses back on, and he has a look on his face. He's holding the Daily Bugle. He has a look on his face of pure shock, and he's saying it can't be. The final panel, he's saying it isn't possible. Why? And the headline on the Daily Bugle reads... This newspaper demands that Spider-Man be arrested and prosecuted. Editorial by J. Jonah Jameson. That's not all. We turn the page. Jameson has doubled down on his lecture tour against Spidey. He's saying he's at a podium. There's a picture of Spidey behind him. He's telling the story that Spider-Man sabotaged the rocket, the rocket launch. That Spider-Man sabotaged the capsule. And then in the ultimate move to grandstand and make a name for himself, saved the capsule. So Spidey didn't really save his son's life. Spidey actually set his son up to die and then swooped in to make himself look like the hero at the end. And J. Jonah Jameson is not having that. He calls Spidey a menace to America. A menace to America. And that's, that's a horrible thing to do to the guy who just saved your son's life. Spidey can't win. Imagine if Spidey had tried to help and failed and John Jameson would have crashed. J.J. would have blamed Spidey completely for it. He should have never tried to help. Ground control had it. I could imagine what JJ would say because JJ is completely biased against Spidey. The next panel we see, Pete standing at a corner and there are all these different people. We have these two guys in the foreground. One's got a green hat, one's got a purple one. The green hat is saying Spider-Man has to be run out of the country. The purple hat is saying, and how? So essentially a green. Because of the constant pressure that the Daily Bugle has been putting on Spider-Man and their campaign against Spider-Man, the FBI have issued a wanted status on Spider-Man. And there is a reward for his capture. The poster reads, wanted. Caution, he is dangerous. There's a picture of Spidey in the center. To the right of that picture it says, report him to nearest FBI office. Spider-Man, reward for his capture is underneath. So Spider-Man has become a wanted man off the strength of one man's personal campaign against him. 
Oh, we get to the final panel. Aunt May at home. She's crotcheting. She's poking a, need a sewing needle through some fabric. So I assume she's crotcheting. But Aunt May, she's standing in their laundry room. Pete's sitting at the table. He's reading the paper. And Aunt May says, oh, dear. This is a quote. Oh, dear. I certainly hope they find that horrible Spider-Man and lock him up before he can do any harm. That's where the story ends with Pete kind of wondering if he's if he's going to be forced to become the monster that everybody's saying he is. And I know from personal experience when you feel like people have this negative opinion of you and you can't shake it and you can't move it, you get to the point of, well, why not? Why not be that person? If everybody says I'm that person, why not be that person? And in some instances, you put on your black suit and you be that person. But in most instances, you do your best to keep the red and blue and stay true to who you are and say, that's not me despite what these people want me to be. That's the final panel, and, and we have this lovely ending where it says, quote, And so, a lonely boy sits and broods with the fate of society at stake. What will his decision be? What will Spider-Man do next? Only time will tell. And that's the end of the Spider-Man story. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. Welcome back to me and my friend Pete. In this second half, we're gonna cover the second story in this amazing Spider-Man number two, The Uncanny Threat of the Deadable Thinker. This issue was scripted by Stan The Man Lee with art by the crowd reaction god Steve Ditko and lettering by art, it's in the name Simek. We're gonna jump right in. We have a caption box on the lower right of this page and it says, everybody loves a bargain, but sometimes it can be dangerous to accept a bargain which is too good to be true, especially if the bargain is being offered by someone like the Tinkerer who, but wait, let's see how it all began and how it took Spider-Man to finish it. And we see above the caption box is Spidey. He's got his arms and legs wide. He's standing outside of what looks like a dungeon door. And we have the Tinkerer shooting him with a very sophisticated looking ray gun. This is a continuation of the picture in picture box on the cover of Amazing Spider-Man number two. But from this angle, we see what the Tinkerer looks like. And the Tinkerer is an older man. Spidey's fighting a lot of old men right now. And the Tinkerer is an older man. He's got a bald head. He's got the Carl Winslow, you know, the hair wrapping around his head. So in the same way I say the Reed Richards for the hair on top, white sides, the Carl Winslow is a baldy on top with just hair on the side, hanging on for dear life. It's a good look for black men mostly. I don't really see white men pull it off too well. It's a very sage-like look. So he's an old man, bald head, really long face. He's got bushy eyebrows and he has on a pair of square rimmed glasses and they're up and they're sitting on his forehead and he's wearing a tweed jacket, a white shirt, green pants, and those green pants may be Pete's green pants. After he got rid of them and his life started looking up again, he got rid of the green pants and he went back to his Steve Job blues, dropped them off in Goodwill, and maybe the Tinkerer picked them up from there. We don't know, but the Tinkerer's wearing brown shoes as well. Seems like the basic fit for an older man in the 60s. So we get to page two and Pete's in the science lab. It's after Clash. Flash is here, he's got on a black sweater with a snazzy triangle rectangle design on the center. It's a really beautiful sweater, Flash. Blondie's here, she's doing green blouse, she's doing purple pencil skirt. The brunette who invited Pete downtown to watch the jewelry transported, she's here. She's got on a blue top, blue skirt, and class is over. 
but our friend Pete is still hard at work and looking good doing it. He's got on a red sweater vest, he's got his Steve Jobs blues on, he has on a pinstripe shirt with a black tie, and he's still hard at work. I'm really, really liking Pete's fashion choices right now. He looks so stylish. Good for you, Pete. Stun on him. Stun on him. But Pete's still hard at work, and Brunette says she's glad class is over, that she's over staring at science equipment, and Blondie tells her to be quiet. Blondie says that Brunette will break Pete's heart talking like that because he loves this stuff. But if Pete hears them, he doesn't care. He's holding a file in one hand. He's got a round bottom boiling flask in the other. And the look on his face is quiet focus. His professor comes in with a professor named Cobwell. Cobwell by name? Cobbs very well by reputation. Yeah, baby, yeah. Well, Cobwell's wearing a green suit, red tie. He's got shock white hair. He's got bushy eyebrows and mustache. And Pete's professor says that Cobwell needs some help with research. Of course, Pete jumps at the chance and Cobwell thanks him for it. Cobwell reaches into his wallet and he gives Pete two cards. One's his address. The other's the address of a repair shop he wants Pete to visit before he helps with the experiments tomorrow. He wants Pete to pick up a radio, and Pete says he'll be happy to do it. You know, in these moments, this is how you make connections. When someone asks you for a favor and it's something small and it's on your way to them, you do it. You build up a good rapport. This is, this is what they call the one hand washing the other, and Pete knows how to use the soap. The teacher and professor leave, and after a few minutes, Flash's salt spills all over the room. He says, well, well, so teacher's pet is gonna help the nice little doctor with some experiments this weekend, eh? While us other dumbheads waste time having dates and living it up. But Pete is not having it today. He's feeling confident, he's feeling seen, he's got on a red vest, so he's not shook. He shoots back, he says, knock it off, Flash. You're darn right I'd jump at the chance to work with a brain man like Dr. Cobwell. As for you being a dumbhead, it's nothing to be ashamed of. You were just born that way. And he gets out of there. He takes off before Flash can think of a comeback and waiting for Flash to think of a comeback. Let's be honest. We'd be waiting a long time because Flash self-admitted to being a dumbhead. I don't have time to sit around and wait for dumbheads to make a comeback. If you say something snarky and I say something snarky and you don't got a comeback, I win. I got the last hit, them's the rules. I didn't make these rules, but here they are. Got you last is a real thing. And it's not only in the world of physical assault. The next day, Pete's in his bedroom. He's getting ready to head out to help the professor with his experiments. He has his Steve Jobs blues on. He's pulling the top half of his Spider-Man costume over his head. He's got the belt on his waist. And he's saying he's gonna wear his costume because he doesn't know when he'll need it and he feels undressed without it. So his Spider-Man persona is starting to mean more and more to him to the point where he needs it under his clothes just in case. He feels naked without it now. So he's been adventuring a little bit and it looks like Pete's been bitten by the bug superheroing bug. Very contagious. I think he got it from the Fantastic Four in issue one. Because if you think about it, he didn't fight any superpowered menaces until after he met them. So Pete throws on his tweed jacket and he heads out to pick up the doctor's radio. And in the final panel we see he gets to the Tinkerer's repair shop and he says that the name is offbeat and he calls the Tinkerer a kook and goes inside. Pete says this out loud, you know, Pete's always monologuing. To say it out loud, I think, makes him a jerk. We are allowed to think whatever we want. There are no thought police. I hope there is never a point in history where thought police exist. But the fact that he says it out loud and he's put it into the world that way and you're calling someone you never met a kook, that's lowbrow, Pete. Let's be a little bit bigger than that. But I wanna point out that the Tinkerer's Workshop looks like the New York Cancer Hospital 
located on Central Park West. It's a red brick building. It looks kind of like a castle. It has all these rounded, there are no, really no corners on that building that I've seen. Every corner is a rounded castle tower. They all look like castle towers. And that's what the Tinkerer's shop reminds me of. It reminds me of the New York Cancer Hospital on Central Park West. So we move to page three and Pete's inside of Tink's shop. There are clocks, there are radios, they're all around him. And he meets the Tinkerer who introduces himself as the Tinkerer. Spidey's villains do not use real names. I wonder if that's a conscious effort on Stan Lee's part because if you don't use names, it removes that human humanized connection. I'm not gonna take any person seriously as a person who walks up to me calling themselves the Vulture. Or I'm not gonna take them seriously at first until I get over that hurdle. So when I see the Vulture and the Tinkerer and the Chameleon especially, when I see all of these supervillains refusing to use their real names, I think it may have been a conscious effort on Stan the Man's part to keep them separate from us. Because if you have no real name to me, you don't have any real identity to me and it's easy for me to root against you, despite how cool you may be. Because to me, the Vulture is extremely cool, but the Vulture signs his name the Vulture. So it puts up a wall between us because I sign my name Gerald Kelsey Jr. And it's just different. Back to Pete says, He's here to pick up the radio and he hands Tink the ticket for it that Dr. Cobwell gave him. Tink takes the ticket, he's nearsighted, so he lifts his glasses to read it and he says he'll go grab the radio while Pete's standing here, hands in pocket, thinking that Tink looks like a Grimm's fairy tales character. But Pete doesn't say it out loud, so that's a little bit of a difference. We're allowed access into his mind, shouldn't be judging a person for what's going on in their head. I'm not the thought police. I'm not any police. I would never be. Abolish the police. But Pete's only thinking it, so I guess it's fine. But immediately after, his spider sense goes off. And if I'm remembering correctly, we get the first use of Pete's spider sense going off where half his face is drawn with the Spider-Man mask on it. It's a beautiful panel. This is, in all of comics, my favorite thing. It's my favorite image to see in comics Pete with half his face Pete and half his face Spider-Man. I don't know what it is about it because fun fact, true fact, my favorite Batman villain is Two-Face. And maybe it's just because when you have two things happening on one face, you've hooked me. You got me. I'm already sold. I'm easy. I'll admit it. I'm easy for it. Back to my favorite toy ever was in 1995. McDonald's had a Spider-Man, the animated series toy set. And one of the toys was a Peter Parker, camera in hand, whose head could flip from normal Pete to Spidey Sense's tingling Pete. It's the best graphic in comics. So Pete's Spidey Sense goes off and he thinks it's picking up odd electrical impulses, but tells himself he has to stop being so suspicious. He thinks the tinkerer, quote, looks about as dangerous as a secondhand cream puff. Pete is out of line with this man in his mind. He's going all out. He's calling Grimm's fairy tale, called him a kook before he walked into the shop. And now he's saying that he looks like a secondhand cream puff. So Pete's thinking all this crap. And then at the end of it, he's like, even if I were suspicious, he's a weakling. I can handle him. That's not cool, Pete. Don't be arrogant. But while Pete's thinking this, Tink's descending the stairs in the next panel. And he's headed towards a large blue steel door. He enters through the door into a soundproof basement room. We can only see a pair of green hands, but they're working on the radio. And Tink says Cobble is ready for his radio, that it's one of their special jobs. The next panel, we get a good look at the body the green hands belong to, and it's an alien. He's got antennas, he's got green skin, he's got a heavy brow, he's got a head that looks like a butt facing the ceiling. 
He's into the nightlife. He's wearing a black crop top and purple underwear and a purple belt. He says he's inserted the special device into the radio and the good doctor won't suspect anything at all. In the final panel on this page, we see this isn't the only alien here. There's at least one more behind him working on a futuristic looking piece of machinery. Tinkerer grabs the radio saying none of their special customers will suspect a thing and the alien says of course not. But they still have to be careful. No one can know of their plan until they're ready to strike. We turn the page and the tinkerer has climbed back up the stairs. He's given a radio to Pete. And Pete's more than a little shocked that the tinkerer, for all of his labor, is only charging a dime for fixing the radio. So Pete's been tossed ruthlessly into a world of capitalism with the death of his Uncle Ben. And if there's one thing he's learned quickly is that you gotta make the donuts and you can't do that on dimes. Tink says, don't worry about it. He charges so little because it brings in lots of customers. And that may make sense. You lower the price, you get more customers. It offsets that price drop that you've created. At least I think that's how it works in basic economics. Pete doesn't respond. He heads out to meet Dr. Cobwell. We see him and Dr. Cobwell. They have their lab coats on. They're in Dr. Cobwell's laboratory. Dr. Cobwell has on some green tweed pants. And Pete must have mentioned the low price because Cobwell is telling him he only went to Tink because the price was so cheap. He starts explaining to Pete the experiment that he's once done, but Pete has become fixated on the tinkerer. He's thinking, I still don't get it. The tinkerer must be losing money on every customer. And he didn't look like a nut to me, so what's his angle? Nobody gives anything for nothing. And dimes don't make donuts. But Pete's got work to do, so he tells himself to push Tink from his mind, and he gets to that work. He's got a distillation kit hooked up. He's got a small round bottom flask in his hand. And you know, scientists go science, so Pete gets right to work. But his spider sense goes off again. Whatever he was sensing in that shop is here too, and he's thinking the Spider-Man in him is reacting to it. He looks around the lab, he spots the radio, and he wonders if the electrical impulses are coming from the radio because it's suspicious if it is because this radio is switched off. Next panel, we see Dr. Cabo. He's sliding his green tweed jacket on. He's got a lecture at the Institute. I'm sure he means the Fashion Institute because good style is a science. No? Everybody's a critic. He says he'll be back in a few hours, and as soon as the door slams behind him, Pete says it's time to investigate. The next page we see Pete, he's cracking the radio open. He spots the special device. And I think we can assume Pete's taken a radio apart before because he says no ordinary radio has guts like this. He says he's through kidding around, bringing it back to Pete being an engineer and understanding these things. The next panel, you already know. Pete's suited, Pete's booted, and Spidey is web swinging onto the scene. The scene, the tinkerer shop. He drops in through a skylight, a little break in an inner action, and surrounded by darkness, his spider senses trip again. He finds the stairs to the basement, and he's thinking it's not a basement. He thinks that it's more like a concrete reinforced dungeon. That's a quote. But Spidey's lucky, the door of this dungeon is open, and he creeps towards the door. Inside of the basement laboratory, we have three aliens working. They're tapping computer screens, they're flipping switches, they're moving around in the background, and in the foreground, Tink, like all villains, is monologuing. He says, yes. Our electronic spy devices hidden in radios belonging to imported earthlings have enabled us to learn much about their strengths and weaknesses before we attack the unsuspecting planet. An alien commands him to be quiet and says he's processing the latest pictures from a radio that they've, air quotes, repaired for a military leader. The next page, we have Tink and an alien. They're standing in front of one of the TV monitors. And Tink's saying his devices never fail. And the alien tells him to shut up again so he can hear. So Tink obviously talks too much. On the monitor that they're staring at, 
We see the general, and this general is discussing plans for the defense of the eastern seaboard. All this is going on, Spidey's watching it, he's hidden behind the door at the entrance of the dungeon. He doesn't seem surprised at all that there are little green men using spy devices to find out military and scientific secrets. But while he's thinking on it, one of the crop top aliens comes up behind him and his spider sense goes off. The alien fires a ray gun at Spidey and with no choice, Spidey dives into the spy room. An alien lunges at him, calling him a costumed earth creature while the tinkerer looks on. But Spidey flips out of the reach of that alien and another one who comes to help and Spidey's saying, you can try to seize me, but quote, it's not gonna be that easy, buddy boy. And when he flips, he says, see what I mean? So already, throwing the quips out, throwing the quips out. He runs up the wall to avoid them, the sheer wall, as an alien beneath him points out that he can scale sheer walls. So everybody is amazed at the idea that Spidey can climb these sheer walls. All this is happening and the tinkerer is livid. He's behind the alien. He's shaking the angriest fist on planet Earth up at Spidey. He tells the aliens that Spidey ain't no ordinary earthling and they need to get him now. Get that man down from that wall because that man is dangerous. That's what the tinkerer is throwing at these aliens. And all the aliens we see, they're beneath him and they're losing it. One screams that if Spidey escapes, knowing what he knows, their plans are wasted. Just before radio is hurled up at Spidey, causing him to lose his grip on the ceiling. To be fair, Spidey should have known he had no chance. Ceilings are not sheer walls. He should have never broken off of that sheer wall and went straight to the ceiling. He can't handle the ceiling yet. He just got the powers. He can't handle the ceiling yet. He should have had the little web strand that he was constantly holding. What happened to that, Spidey? Why, why don't you have it? He played himself. Back on the ground now, Spidey's immediately, immediately jumped by three of the aliens and they say he's going to be rendered helpless by their sheer numbers. But Spidey's not having that. He says it's been tried before and we see him burst free of their grip, sending them all flying. One alien screams, his strength is greater than we suspected. Another shouts, he shook us all off. A weapon. We need a weapon. But Tink's ready for this. He hops on the scene. They need a weapon. Tink's got weapons. Using the ray gun from page one of this story, he blasts Spidey in the back, knocking Spidey unconscious. We see Spidey laid out on the floor, and the tinkerer says a normal man would be dead, but Spidey is not a normal man. Tink says, It would have killed him. Any normal human. But it merely stunned him. An alien, he's not trying to hear that. Spidey stunned, that's perfectly fine. He says to put Spidey, he calls Spidey a specimen. He says put Spidey in the cage before the specimen wakes up. They toss Spidey into a clear domed, half circle prison. Tink says nothing can break out of this resisto glass, which is an old timey, much better way to say bulletproof glass. And says the only problem they have now is finding a way to get rid of Spidey. And it's a great panel. Spidey is inside of this bulletproof prison. He's rubbing his head. And he's trapped. And on the final panel, we get a great close-up shot of the Tinkerer. He and I have the same type of eyes. My eyelids sit very low at times and it can look like my eyes are closed. That's what's happening here with Tink. And he's saying Spidey is the only person who knows about their plans. An alien agrees and says there's not a question to be had. Spidey has to be destroyed. The alien then says to release the air from the prison. So his plan is to suffocate Spider-Man. And if we're talking about cruel ways to off-switch someone, that to me is top five. I think we take for granted how easily our bodies breathe in, breathe out. The idea of being suffocated, the idea that is horrifying to me. We turn the page, we're on page eight. The infinity page. And things go down. An alien has walked over to the control panel of the prison and he presses a button saying Spidey won't be menacing them for much longer. Spidey is squished inside of his prison. He thinks he needs to act fast and he notices that the control panel the alien is working at controls his prison. He also notices that the air in the prison is being forced out through tiny holes in the bottom of the resisto glass. He thinks instead of killing him, those holes are going to be what saves his life. So these aliens 
are trying to force the air out, but there are these little holes along the bottom of the cell, and Spidey's gonna use that to save his life. The next panel, we get a close-up of Spidey's web shooter and how it's designed. The cartridges of the fluid wrap around his wrist connected to an adjustable spray nozzle, and to make it shoot, there is a release button on his palm connected to the cartridges on his wrist. This thing is so perfectly engineered, Spidey even threw a safety on it, so I assume the shooters don't spray when he's trying to clobber someone. In the next three panels, we see Spidey line his wrist up with one of the holes, he turns the safety catch off, and he fires. Does Spidey get the hit? Of course he gets the hit. Spidey always gets the hit. And nobody sees. The cage opens from the bottom, he falls free, and an alien spots him. And I'm sure they know they're in for a world of hurt. The final panel on this page is proof. Spidey clocks the alien shouting that he's escaped, saying, Who do you think you are, the town crier? Mind your business. Here, take this. Mm, mind your business. Out here shouting. <laughs> the alien goes crashing into another alien who had a ray gun drawn, ready to gun Spidey down, which begs the question, if one shot stunned Spidey before, why didn't Tink just double tap? Bow, bow. Why didn't he just do that? I'm not gonna give any villain advice though. It's me and my friend Pete. I'm always rooting for Spidey. And the alien with the gun calls the one who crashes into him a fool because the ray gun goes off and he shoots the control panel immediately causing a fire. All this Spidey goodness just went down where? On the, the infinity page. We get to page nine and there is fire and smoke everywhere. The aliens say that it'll take months to repair that control panel and fearing Spidey's power, they break for the door with the tinkerer racing behind them shouting, wait, don't leave me, don't abandon me, as the fire from the panel grows larger and larger. Spidey's not bothered by the fire though. He leaps over it, he tackles the tinkerer, and we see Spidey has a bit of a patriot in him. He says, hold on there laughing boy, you're not going anywhere. They were just doing their duty to whatever planet they were from, but you, you traitor. Still, Spidey plans on saving the Tinkerer, but with the fire raging out of control and the Tinkerer struggling, shouting, No, let me go. Take your hands off me. Nobody touches the Tinkerer. Spidey is forced to let him go or he's going to die. Spidey crawls through the air vent and we see he reaches the roof and he's glad he's okay but says the building will be ashes in minutes. He hears sirens and fire engines and he needs to get out of there now. As he does, He's spotted swinging away on a web by one of the people on the ground. They're too small to see what they're wearing. You know I care about the fashion, but they're way too small. Spidey is up there. I'm sorry, I can't see. He's one green stick figure-ish looking person on the ground. And he's saying that maybe Spider-Man started the fire. And he's not wrong on the technicality. Spidey did clock one alien into another alien who was holding a ray gun, who shot the ray gun that hit the control panel that started the fire. But I don't know why he swallowed the fly. I guess he'll die. We get to the final page of this story and we see a rocket ship. It's very Jetsons looking, futuristic, lots of curves, not too many sharp angles, and it's taken off from what I assume to be the Great Lawn of Central Park. It has to be. It's a clearing with skyscrapers not too far off. There's nowhere else in the city where a park is set up like that. These aliens were hiding in plain sight on the Great Lawn of Central Park. That's where they were. That's it. And we see Spidey has just saved the Earth from prying alien eyes as the aliens say, Safe at last. Press the button which will destroy all our spy devices by remote control. It is done. We can never again return to Earth. They will be on guard from this day on. And they're saying this while they're taking off. So Pete's just unwittingly saved the planet from a hostile espionage attempt by aliens. The next panel, we got Pete. He's back in his lab coat. He has his black button-up shirt on. He's got his Steve Jobs blues on. And he races back to Cabo's lab and checks the radio to find out it's working normally again. So Cabo comes in 
We can tell by how he's drawn. He's speed walking. He's excited. And he tells Pete he could swear he just saw a spaceship fading into the atmosphere. And Pete asks what it looked like. But like most men of some status, Cobwell is afraid to look stupid or crazy. So he says he's just going to shut up about it because he doesn't have proof. And he doesn't want people treating him like the stereotypical absent-minded professor. And Pete doesn't fight him on it. He just agrees. Cobwell walks away, a hand running through his hair. And he's thinking that he was so sure. But if he's not going to be confident about it and spit it out into the world, it's just going to be on the back of his mind. For the rest of Cobwell's life, he's going to be thinking about that night that he saw that alien spaceship take off from Central Park. It's going to be on his mind for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Pete hasn't even waited until the man's left the room. He's holding the tinkerer's face in his hands, and he's saying if he didn't have the mask, he wouldn't believe it either. So he's in the same boat as the professor's at the end because he can't ever talk about Spidey's adventures without people getting suspicious of Peter Parker. And that's very true. Why do you know so much about these things that Spider-Man get gets into? With the Tinkerer's mask in his hands, however, it makes me wonder, is Tinkerer an alien? Will we ever see the Tinkerer again? Will that be explained? We don't know. The final panel of this comic, we get Spidey. He's standing here. There's a yellow background. The background is covered in webbing. And beneath him it says, quote, The beginning of more and greater Spider-Man adventures starting next issue.